Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray analysing the lie as we once again find ourselves off the fairway and exploring parts of the course that others rarely see. There are loads of interesting topics in golf and loads of important ones too, but few go to the very heart of the game's ongoing existence, like what we're going to chat about today, sustainability. We are at this moment right in the middle of Sustainable Golf Week. That's a fact that is probably known by far too few of us, but it's vastly more important than a lot of the stuff that we do know. So what is sustainability and why is it important to golf? Is it as simple as just using less water and pesticides, or is it an issue where we all have a role? Joining us in a moment to discuss some legitimately big issues will be the GEO Foundation for Sustainable Golf's Sam Thomas. He's the Director of Golf Development, and he'll be with us in just a moment. Before we meet Sam, though, let me bring in my co-host, first Deputy Editor of Golf Australia magazine, and representing the millennials the world over, Jimmy Emanuel. I looked that up this morning. You're a millennial. Am I really? I assume so. When were you born? 1988. I think you're a millennial. You're right in the sweet spot there. Don't I feel special? It's a whole generation. No pressure. (laughs) None felt ever. Looking forward to today's chat. We will come to that, actually. I suspect that... Your life experience with sustainability and the environment has been very different to ours, myself Absolutely. and Logue, so that we'll, we'll have a chat about that. As always, the ever-thoughtful Adrian Logue, whose celebrity has now grown to the point where he was he is the guest on the current episode of Shane Darby's Firm and Fast podcast. Can I say through gritted teeth, Logue, what an interesting conversation that was, in fact. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Rod. Yeah, representing Gen X. You're, a, uh, you're yeah. an ex? What, am I? Uh, yeah. Hold on, am I you must ex- be an ex as well, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, listening to your interview with Shane only confirmed how embarrassing it was to have him on our show, given how prepared <laughs> oh, he is so and prepared. the debacle that ours is. So prepared. Very highly recommended yeah. listening to his podcast, not necessarily my episode. <laughs> his podcast, but the episode yeah. was good. After the world's longest introduction, let's meet today's guest. The website of the GEO Foundation for Sustainable Golf says that they are an international body founded 16 years ago to, quote, inspire, support and reward credible sustainability action and to strengthen and promote golf's social and environmental value. This is right in the wheelhouse here at Good Good, and it's a pleasure to welcome Sam Thomas to the show. Sam, thanks for taking some time. Thanks, Rod. Nice to be here. Yeah. Am I right in saying this is the first official Sustainable Golf Week? Yes, that's right. Yeah, but last year we did a sort of one-day event, and it's sort of grown into a realising we had enough content for the whole week. So, yeah, this is the... What have you been doing for 16 years? I jest, of course. It's, uh, <laughs> you're in an area. You need good communicators like you, Rob. We'll touch, a bu- touch on a bunch of stuff as we go through, but I would imagine that communication element is hugely important, Sam, and that's kind of the goal of Sustainable Golf Week. Right, exactly. You know, I think you, you sort of touched on it there, the, the – the view of people have of golf and, and, and sometimes if they don't play the game, they don't quite understand what we do, what it is, what the golf course is. And um, so the image and reputation of the game and how we can improve that is all about like sustainable golf week stories, real examples and, and, you know, interest stories from places and people in the industry who are actually really working hard trying to do their job as best they can. And it just happens that it's benefiting the environment um, in all these various different ways. Yeah, we'll come to that in a moment. But golf's in a real position to lead in so many ways, isn't it? We, as I said, we'll come back to yeah. that uh, shortly. I'm really impressed with the way you've sort of laid out this notion for Sustainable Golf Week, where each day has had a separate kind of topic to think about. I'll run through the headings. You tell us what we've sort of been, what, what's what the point of those ones are. So, teed off on Monday, October the third. I think this is sort of Northern Hemisphere time. Our biggest team challenge. What's that about? Biggest team challenge. Well, I think it's about realizing that you 
you can't do it on your own. You know, it it really has to be a part of the 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 process or the 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 challenge that we're all facing can't be done individually. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't say this maybe, but you know, there's, there's a way that you eat an elephant, but you shouldn't eat elephants, by the way, that's a caveat. You just do it one, <laughs> Tasty. one mouthful at a time. <laughs> not as sustainable. It's, it's a treat, not a regular. <laughs> <laughs> don't be an idiot. Uh, well, well, you know, a wagyu elephant. Yeah. There are, you know. Just stop it. There's enough of that. Uh, all of these could be entire episodes in their own right, but we'll shift on through. Golf courses of the future. Now, I don't think we're going to get even a, 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 dry, a drop into the what we could discuss this, but golf courses of the future. How much thought are we giving to the golf courses of the future? Yeah, and I think it's really it's really about what you know. What are the challenges that we're going to face in the next 15, 20 years? And really highlighting how today the industry is is in place, is starting to adapt and think ahead and trying to future proof. You know, in inverted commas, how you know how we operate, how we run, how we present our golf courses. Are there some surprising things in that? You immediately think water. We've been talking about water being an issue for the last quarter of a decade at least, and we know that's it. Is that the only one? Or are there some surprising uh, issues coming for golf that aren't about water? Well, if you think about the resources that you need for, you know, the mix for golf courses is really sand and water and grass. And so sand is an issue that is extremely difficult to get hold of, particularly when in the construction of new golf courses, but also in the maintenance of existing ones. So sand is something that we're seeing a challenge on, you know, every week right now. But then it's also, um, you know, growing populations and urbanization and, and kind of sprawl, if you like, from, from cities and trying to protect the, the, the land becoming more of a precious resource and that being able to defend golf as a useful land use, um, you know, beyond other things. Which might be among our biggest challenges, one we've talked about here. <laughs> uh, so much of that many times depends on how golf appears to non-golfers as well, doesn't it? When when non-golfers look over the fence and they see water being sprayed around everywhere and incredibly green grass, they must wonder what we're up to. Yeah, and they don't know, you know, the precision in which you know the superintendents operate at in terms of hand watering, spot watering, monitoring the soil making sure that they're keeping the grass, you know, just on the edge of, 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 of being, of dying, but also not oversaturating it so you get thatchy, soft laying conditions. So greenkeepers know that they do that, but we're not always the best at telling people. And so you're right, the casual person walking their dog down the street and looking through the fence just thinks what a waste of water that is. So and that, that's, that's a problem that we need to address. It's kind of that bigger issue, isn't it, about the image of the game beyond the game, which we talk a lot about here as well. Uh, the professional game, Golf Cities and Land is Thursday the 6th, which is our Friday, which is our tomorrow. So I think we've touched on that one there. Big and visible, the professional game was the topic for sort of Wednesday, which is what we're sort of in today, Sam. Talk, talk about that. The professional game's relationship to the broader game is an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And right now, right now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but... What what we see, what we mean, or what we see is, is an opportunity in that space of the professional uh, professional golfers and the tournament uh, venues is the visibility that they can bring. You know, um, it's particularly the PGA Tour players, but also the LPGA and, and the other tours out there. So, using that platform and their voice to be able to actually raise awareness about the issue really is, is the key part of that, and being giving them confidence and, and being able to speak out and know that they are. They've got someone behind us, you know, like us, who's giving them support and backing and, and guidance as to as to the things to say and 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 what makes the place that they're playing in special. 
I think Suzanne Patterson, if I'm not mistaken, the Songhai yep. Cup captain, is a, and has been for about three or four years uh, an ambassador for the GA Foundation, yeah? I th- yeah, and I think the big thing with, with professional golf is that it's so many people's view of golf. So there's the shop front, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And like I think, you know, we'll probably talk about it a bit more, but one of the greatest examples is we make a big deal at the Scottish Open each year that they give given refillable water bottles rather than not non stop plastic bottles to use. That shouldn't be a big deal in professional golf, you know, but so many things in professional golf are it's always happened that way and their sponsors being, you know, Coca Cola's a huge supporter of, of golf worldwide that wanna see players drinking a Mount Franklin water bottle or Dasani in the US rather than refilling a tournament bottle. But it shouldn't be that big of a deal. You walk around anywhere in the world now and people carry their refillable bottles. So professional golf has that chance, I think, to be the viewpoint for it. Yeah, agreed. It's changed here in Australia too, hasn't it? There's a number of tournaments now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think Vic Open and New South Wales Open last year, and I'd imagine some of the big ones this year as well. And that's a great example, Sam, is it not, of just a bit of creative thinking. There's no reason why you couldn't have uh, reusable Mount Franklin bottles. Yeah. <laughs> a, that sort of thing. It's just, a, it's just <laughs> not as huge changes necessarily either that need to be made just to make that visible sort of change to the broader community. Yeah, and you think about tournaments, they tend to brand things with the year that the tournament's being played on, for example. That makes that piece of, of fabric or furniture or equipment only good for that year, so you can't reuse it the next time you've got right the tournament. Point. So it's just thinking carefully about waste management and trying to just you know, uh, be creative about how much waste that event's generating. And we, we've done, you know, so, um, put together some relationships where the carpets, for example, get taken up and then they get used in different in, in local housing schemes and other places okay. where, they, mm. where they need to have. So you can you can build relationships with the local community and then they suddenly feel that it's not just a bunch of, of golfers coming to town and making a party and a mess and leaving, that there's actually a value and a, and a legacy that, that's positive and, and, and that helps build relationships outside of golf, which is which is important. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it goes back to that being part of the community. Doesn't it? That's a tricky one, isn't it? The, the tournament, yeah. if I'd been at the 2013 oh, Masters, right. I would want something that said 2013 Masters because it's the one yeah. that Adam Scott won. So that's a bit of a tricky one, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You get around that. But it's yeah, but I- then they advertising boards that are around the tees or, you know, stuff yes. like that that you see on TV, you know, that's a little easier. Mm. I love that. Uh, thought and this this comes from watchmaking, which you guys all, all love. But uh, will we? <laughs> Interesting take. Bold. Vintage watches are really popular, and you know, restoring vintage watches. And and there's this uh, line that's often uses that we've made enough of everything in the 20th century to last us through the 21st. It's a really good point, isn't it? Yeah. But we never give it a thought to it because, of course, our systems are based on consumption. There's much bigger and broader issues there, aren't there? There's a whole. Well, it's the whole industry. It's consumption. People have to consume stuff so that you can sell them some more. So Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories a million times around tournament golf of finding of signage boards from tees two years later that they forgot were there. Sorry. So they, they've made new ones and oh, someone's found them down, story down in a shed and gone, oh, you know we've got these? Wow. Like that sort of stuff of, oh, well, we'll just get some new stuff rather than thinking about it or even repurposing it for, you know, different golf things and juniors and all that sort of stuff, which just happens a bit, but not enough, obviously. Sam, a lot of that seems like low-hanging fruit. Uh, Is there a lot of low-hanging fruit we haven't picked yet in this space, sustainability? In particular, we're talking about professional golf, I suppose, especially because they're big, visible events that have a lot of infrastructure around them. But is there a lot of low-hanging fruit that could make golf more sustainable? Yeah, well, the last thing on the sort of tournament idea is even the, the fact that you've got a lot of public you know, um, a lot of members of the public out on a golf course that wouldn't maybe normally be there. 
So you've got a chance then to put up signage and, and awareness raising and, and invite them to have a go at the game, but also see that around the golf course, there's there's a whole parts of it which aren't really short grass, but there's actually woodlands and trees and whatever it might be. And run. So you can you can sort of educate as well and use it as a platform for, for promotion of the game and, and realizing that there's a there's more to it than the, just a little piece of grass. The the two percent that's a golf green is not the whole the whole story. So tournaments have got a, a role to play um, in that. Then outside of that, back into you know existing courses and also developments. I think particularly that's where I spend most of my time is the construction and design of golf courses. Um, and there's huge amounts of um, wins to have early on in the process. Um, thinking about how you might plan the site, thinking about how you might get materials there, thinking about how, how you might route the golf course, place the clubhouse, put the entrance road. If you don't think carefully about those decisions or you just sort of, you know, arbitrarily plan them, you, you're missing a huge opportunity to save, you know, how much carbon or diesel you might burn or how much earth you need to move or where you might store your water or whatever it might be. So, but if you wait too long along that process of a designing a golf course, it, the more and more difficult and expensive it gets to sort of refit those things. It's like, you know, imagine like your house, right? If you, you built your house and then you realize actually I would rather have my bathroom on the back than the front, mm. it's a bit late to fix that. Founda- it's, you build the foundations of the house, don't you? And that takes all of the time. And the house itself actually goes up pretty quickly. But if you get the foundations right, then that then that project for its its entire life mm-hmm. is a more efficient ongoing uh, but I think, what's been the reaction? I'm int- I'm interested. In architecture is something we talk about a lot here. I and mean, when we think about architecture, we think about the designs of holes and what makes them interesting and makes you think and all of those sorts of things. It's not all there is to it, of course. They are in the ground. What's been the response from those in the architecture industry? Who do you talk to and what sorts of discussions do you have? I think a lot of, you know, uh, the vast majority of, the, of those those people are already thinking about those kind of, of, of ideas about how they can conserve nature, how they can build in more, you know, more native vegetation and, and create a, a golf course that sits quietly on the landscape. It kind of just is laid on and it and it really gives the people who visit a sense of playing in that part of the world rather than trying to template, you know, a golf course that you might see in Florida and take that to the to the west coast of Australia. You know, you, you want to be in that or Vietnam, for example, you want to be there and feel like you're playing in that part of the world. So that involves trying to be, um, you know, careful with the way you plan things and try to be minimal in the way that in, that you sort of design things to a point. You still have to create an experience for the golfer. Um, and I think a lot of those guys have been doing that almost without realizing that actually there's a there's a resource saving to be had here. We're actually smarter about the way we're doing things and people aren't really recognizing that. And then if you talk to the superintendents, they sort of um, bemoan the fact that they they can't go back to the start of the construction and, and rebuild certain things and can't understand why mistakes were made. So we also quite like superintendent view to be part of that construction process if they can, um, you know, with the architects. And so that or at least thinking about that long term maintenance, because what you just said, once you set up the golf course, if you've done it in the right way and a smart way, you can continue to reap the benefits of those savings about, you know, where you put the maintenance facility, for example. If you have it in a place that is, you know, five miles down the road, those guys and girls have got to get up there every day back and forth. And over the years, that that, that adds up. Whereas if you can find a spot nice and nearby and it, it's easy for the team to shuttle back and forth and to, and to store machinery in the right place, then you're going to create a, a significant amount of long-term savings. 
So it's things like that that we talk about early on. Because all stuff that is golfers, Jimmy, I don't reckon we'd ever give a thought to. You go to a golf course, you'd never give a thought to any of this stuff. <laughs> you just you, you play it and whatever. But the long-term ramifications of what Sam's talking about here are clear once you think about it, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the people who probably do think about it, people who are running facilities, not from a sustainability point of view, but from a cost point of view. Time wasted in going five miles up yeah. the road to the maintenance shed the, three times a day. The, they, you know, most places I can think of, say, Long Reef in Sydney, where they've moved the maintenance shed from the middle of the property to the top left-hand corner up a hill. I mean, they must have really raised their fuel fuel usage getting it up there, getting the machines up there, getting them back down, the time spent, all that sort of stuff. So they would think about that and then... Hopefully, with things like this week, they can start to consider the sustainability element of it too. But I think there would be people who would be aware of these sort of things, but maybe not thinking of them in the right sort of way. Um, But it has to obviously become part of it because you're going to get more questions. If you run a facility for a council, councils have a lot more you know, a lot more of a focus on this area of, of their job. So they're going to be asking questions about what are you doing to make sure that what you're doing is sustainable moving forward. Where's the balance log? Is having the maintenance facility in the middle of Long Reef so bad that it needs to be moved away? I, and- I think, I mean, that's a great example because I think in doing that, they also restored a little bit of the swamp land Correct. in yeah. that area. And they might I think they might have even won an award for that. Yeah, so. they did. And, and got <laughs> more usable water that they now yeah. use on the golf yeah. course. Too. So it's fascinating uh, balancing act, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Is there a win-win available yeah, here, Sam? Do we, do we? Because, of course, almost all of us think dollars and cents first. That's, that's the starting point. You know, Jimmy's mentioned councils. You know, they're interested in what the golf course is going to cost them or if it can make them a return. If you're running a member's facility, the members want to make sure that they're not paying any more than they have to. Dollars and cents. Are, are some of these sustainable measures actually also money-saving measures? Can we have the win-win or is there always going to be a financial cost to doing things more sustainably? No, yeah, no, it's 100% the way the way around is that if you're doing things more sustainably, you're going to be running your business more efficiently and more effectively as well. You're going to be doing more with, with less inputs and less money and less spend. And if you're a member, like I'm a member of a club, you you like to know that your club is is being prudent and making careful decisions with, with your money and, and investing in the right sort of things. Um, and being sustainable is just goes hand in hand with that. It's, it's, it's just an easy fit. If you, that said, so I can go the other way and say that you do, you have to analyze the new technologies that you see coming out and decide, is that the right thing for us to purchase? So one of the easy ones to pick on, which is, um, is like electric, um, golf course maintenance machinery or hybrid machinery those things are a lot more expensive so it's only available to maybe a certain number of clubs but then you're looking at how long are you going to be getting your payback on those years and so on so it might not be right for all clubs to do that but and then they might be better off spending money on say a weather station for their irrigation system so that they can actually know a little bit more about how much water is falling or soil moisture meter or whatever it might be so that you have to invest carefully Multifaceted. Mm. Uh, Sam, you mentioned you want to know that your club is investing your money sensibly. What what if the members of the club think that gardens and water fountains and uh, graduated rough and extra lines of irrigation yeah. and all that? What if they think that that's uh, the, a, a sensible investment? And isn't a lot of this about educating golfers? 
Are you just trying to wind me up? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're no. Um, education is 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 a massive part of it for sure. And, and then it's funny you're just sort of coming back now to um, tour events or televised golf events, right? And, and the image that they project to to golf clubhouses all over the world. If you sit in one and watch them, you can see them at a PGA events, for example. But they talk, look at look how white the sand is, look how green the grass is, you know, look at that waterfall. That all looks really cool. Waterfall. Um, You're winding us up now. There's a danger. <laughs> the waterfall, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's a danger. There's a danger that people are watching the, the less than 1% of golf courses that are out there on TV and think that that's what they should have at their facility. And I think that's, that's pretty well known within the industry that that's an issue. Um, we just need to do a little bit better as an industry communicating to the golfer, you know, out to the customer and telling them a little bit more about, you know, the superintendents doing, where they're spending money on, you know, why they're doing certain practices and, and just building that respect, like, I guess, for the craft of, of, of superintendents and, and greenkeepers. Um, and that, that will be a good start. It's more than a danger that people will see the game that way, isn't it, Sam? Isn't the reality that it is exactly how the bulk of the non-golf community sees the game? And even worse than that, it is what a s- s- sad percentage of golfers aspire to. Yeah, we had there was an interesting discussion at the event I was at this week where they talked about green speeds, right? So that's an example where you are um, wanting they watch budget. guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is easy. I should interview you. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, you know, if th- running at thirteen on the on the stint meter is, is is a difficult place to keep your greens if you're a, if you're just a members, um, you know, your average members golf club because those, it's expensive and you're stressing the grass and so on and so forth. Um, and it's not sustainable long term because you're going to create disease and you're going to create issues that you have to then resolve using chemical inputs. Is um, is more often than not the case. Speaking of stressing grass, there was a controversial piece uh, put out by somebody from the turf industry this week, talking about how brown is bad effectively. F- firm and fast is bad. Firm and fast is brown bad. Is or overdoing it is bad. And the the argument they made was. Oh boy, it must have been expensive for the RNA. If you've got all the resources of the RNA, you can make the old course look all browned out, uh, but you're putting the grass under enormous stress, and the plant has to, you know, it takes enormous resources to have, help the plant recover. Is is that person completely missing the point? Well, okay, that's an interesting thing. Just I didn't got, hear that. Just got difficult uh, for you, didn't it? Got <laughs> <laughs> your brethren there. It, that, 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 no, that. that so it, it all depends on the grass type, obviously, and, and the fescue that you saw at St. Andrews is, is, is perfectly well adapted to, to go that color. It has long roots. It, it does that every year. It's not just for the open. They, they're not trying to do anything particularly you know, unique. It's just kind of how they treat the golf course. Um, but I suppose you could say that um, you know, if you were a little more nervy or you didn't, you didn't feel you had the ability to recover, um, from too much drought, then you want to keep your, your your moisture levels higher than that, so your grass might be slightly um, less brown. But uh, I don't think that means that you can't have firm and fast golf courses and you can't have um, you know playable um, places. Um, yeah, that's quite a confusing take to take. I, I don't yeah. really see the, the the benefit to that additional water that's going I going down. We'll put a link in the show yeah. notes so people can I, I, read I think, this piece. I think that that piece was really throwing a whole lot of different things at something without forming a coherent argument, and it had parts to it that 
was tagging into the Augustus syndrome of mm-hmm. we see green, we want green. Then he's saying, you know, we see brown, we want that. But that was a false assumption, I think. That was. And, and it was about somehow, you know, uh, courses with more water and greener are more playable for average everyday golfers, which is beyond the yeah. pale of comprehension for me. And that firm courses are harder yeah. because the ball's going to run into Which the rough. Well, makes no yeah, sense whatsoever. But it was it was a very disjointed argument. But there was there was the elements of what we see is not necessarily what we get and what we should aim for. But um, the idea that you know, putting more water and doing all that stuff is the best way forward for golf is just beyond beyond understanding for me. Was yeah. two, there's two things that yeah. the, said. There's, about, sorry, there's the golf elements and then there's the environmental elements, isn't there? Yeah, well, I think it's about extremes. You know, if, if you go too far in one direction or another, then, you, then you're doing something wrong or you're taking too much of a risk or you're, you're using too much of some kind of resource. So, you know, you, ha- you have to be safe as a superintendent has to be careful not to lose his grass because he's tried to make it too brown and thought that, that was a good thing to do. So... We wouldn't. You wouldn't want to push people too far in one direction or another. I, I, I don't think St Andrews this year was, was presented absolutely perfectly for, for the, the way that they set that up. Mm. And um, it, it's, but they know how to keep that got that grass at that level. You know they've been doing it for how many years. So you tread carefully. And as a superintendent, you've got to learn. You know what your what your site does, how your soil dries out, and and then learn where you want to sit that point at. The other thing to think about. We talk about quite a lot when we're going through the you know the process of chatting about creating a new golf course. Is I don't I hate the word product, but what is the kind of golf product that you're trying to create? What's the golfer that you're trying to attract? Are you trying to create a Ryder Cup venue, or are you trying to just create um you know a fun golf course that's going to be part of a community that's going to try to get new players into the game? Those are two diff- completely different um, golf courses and they require different thoughts and challenges and, and investments to be able to create. And so uh, you need to know that you need to know a certain amount of those things before you start the process, or at least it helps because you can make decisions about grass types, about construction depths, about water use and things like that. And you'll, you'll just use enough to create the, the golf course that you were trying to do from the start. And if you don't know where you want to be at the start of the process, you can waste a lot of water and soil and grass and money. I'll leave aside for a moment what I think is a legitimate question about whether those two should be as far apart as they are, (laughs) the community golf course and the Ryder Cup venue. There's a bigger question there about the direction the game's taken. But that notion of what we see is what we want, Sam, does all of this ultimately come down to – we kind of hope that's true – in some ways, don't we? If if we see more firm and fast golf courses using less water, that that's the sort of thing we'll want. We would hope that's true, is it not? And how do you use that? The, the communication of the message is ultimately the almost the most important thing. Is that you've got to bring people with you or these things will never be achieved. Yeah, this, so that comes down to explanations and communications and, expl- you know, why are we doing this and, and what's the level that we're keeping things at and what are we trying to achieve by doing this so that people understand the thought process behind what you're presenting. Um, and and th- I like that because it forces the people that are setting up the golf courses for tournaments now to think and how, you know, create a defensible argument for why they've you know, put pins where they put them or why they've got the greens running at this level or why they're trying to get the moisture meter to be 11% or 8% or whatever it might be. Um, you know, and it, and it introduces what, what what we like to do is it increases discussion and transparency around decision-making. And I think that sometimes the viewer 
doesn't need to know all those details, but the viewer could be let in on some of those thought processes so that they can understand and see why that's relevant for that moment or that tournament. But perhaps if they thought about it, is it really relevant for, for, for them at their golf club or what would they prefer to see? So just off topic, has somebody at the airport given their child a recorder in the background there, Sam? Is that <laughs> what's happened? And, it's, and It's Cindy Lauper. Girls just want to have fun. We didn't. We should have mentioned at the start that Sam's at an Sam's airport. Sam's at the airport. Yeah. Wow, imagine. That is just an horrific sound that you're being subjected to as for what's coming through. Why? Sorry, like you. Um, I love this uh, concept that one size doesn't fit all with this stuff, that you've got to evaluate geography and location and clientele and come up with the right mix of things that are right for any given property. Yeah, 100%. That that's exactly what we you know creating and crafting and making a bespoke solution for the piece of land that your client has purchased is a huge part of the consideration. What what makes you feel a bit uneasy is if you go to a a golf course and they introduce it as you know this is such and such you know another golf course that this group has done as if that it, as if they bought like um you know like they bought a, a model of a car yeah. you know this is another Ford that you're driving that, that isn't for us crafted and uh, authentic to to that part of the world and that place and you're not and sometimes that means you have to be brave you know when you're creating a new golf course you the client needs to be brought along as well in that process or the and the future membership perhaps has to be you know understanding the ethos and the vision of what kind of club they're joining or what kind of course they're going to play at and all those things are about um you know backing yourself or backing your process and, and backing your advice um whether you're an agronomist or an irrigation designer or a golf architect you know there's a civil engineer there's many people in that in that pot um but we, it's really nice when they start to try to craft and, and create something that is is you know bespoken part of that that land and that's when we get really excited about golf courses I suppose for the golfer at club level, listening to what Sam has to say and then pushing that back to a lot of the superintendents around Australian golf courses know their property better than anybody else on the planet. A little microclimates. Yeah, and are trying to in in trying to action things around sustainability and everything like that, but maybe their membership or even the public players are so unaware of what they're trying to do. So it comes back to giving them a voice to membership and to golfers about why certain things look certain ways or are done certain ways. The biggest problem with golf is golfers. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Well, that's the thing. But then, but then you get like we talk about golfers need to do a better job of sort of spreading the word of golf. If you sat down a membership and there was a, a, a superintendent who was in, instilling some really good sustainable practices and they told all their members about what they're doing to be more sustainable to ensure that golf course is placed and ensure it you know is not draining the local environment and everything like that. All those golfers, if they're, let's say, older people who go to dinner parties and stuff like that, they get questioned by one of their friends who's not a golfer and says, how do you live with yourself playing golf all the time and wasting water and doing this sort of stuff? And then he goes, oh, no, well, actually, what we're doing at my club. And it comes back to this idea of golfers spreading the good parts, but also asking more questions. With a week like this, they're going to learn more, hopefully, and then go to their own club and say, well, what are we doing about these sort of things. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, Sam? Where does the drive come from? Memberships can certainly play a role, can't they? I mean, ultimately, you're, as a member, you're the customer, and so you're, you're in a position to really drive. It's demand that drives business, is it? not supply. So you're in a position to demand 
what it is that you want supplied. Most members just demand faster greens and consistent sand in the bunkers. That's oh, They do too. That's is that true, Sam? What sort of pushback do you get? You speak to people all the time in this space. How much if within the industry, how much pushback do you get from people whose immediate response is, oh, that'd be lovely, Sam, but it's expensive, we can't afford it, or it's not what our members want? Yeah, it, unfortunately, it's true what you've just said. You know, they want faster greens and they want, you know, more consistent um, bunker sand so that they don't get punished too badly when they're in the bunkers. And But I think it's really trying to broaden, you know, their horizon and trying to get them to look up from the from the ground and see kind of what's around them and realise that it's actually a living, breathing piece of land. And you have person that lives and works there as a as a superintendent every day who who knows it better than most and perhaps it's worth listening and giving them a voice and, and trying to to raise some respect for, for, for the role that they play and realizing that you know that, that they are doing they are doing a, a job that's carried out with real precision and care and i think sometimes the members you know i don't like to generalize because it's not fair but you know a worst case scenario is that they just think those guys just want to cut grass and go home, and that it you know just couldn't be further from the truth. And 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 that's what we really want to try to arm the industry with, and, and those those people who work on the on the ground with with ways and means to be able to show that it's not just about doing that. Yeah, there's a perception of superintendents as from the turf industry, and therefore all they're interested in doing is growing grass everywhere. But in actual fact. You know, those playing surfaces of a golf course only form a you know, certain percentage of the golf course and there's a lot of non-playing areas, which are, as you said, woodlands or uh, indigenous ground cover and all sorts of species and opportunity for great biodiversity there. And in, in many ways, the, these greenkeepers and superintendents are, are some of your biggest allies in, in spreading the word about what else is out there on the golf course other than the playing surfaces, right? Yeah, and trying to decouple the the myth that sometimes you you hear, where if it's sustainable, it, it's probably scruffy and, and brown and, and not very pretty because it, they're not looking after it because they're trying to make it sustainable and and isn't that a terrible thing? And I think we should probably try and put you know put more water in and cut it more often and, and so on and so forth to make it tidy it up. That's not that that just isn't what sustainability is. It's not trying to make your golf course scruffy and rough. It's it's actually can be. It's still well polished, still well looked after, and actually healthier, you know, to play on, but also for wildlife, for plants, for the grass, for air circulation, air quality, water quality, you know, all those things make the environment healthy. And the golf course, the conditioning that we're talking about, the golf course can, can thrive as a result of that. Plus, it might be a nicer place to go and play. An impossible question to answer, Sam. They're my favourites ones. Are golf's biggest issues in this this area within or without <laughs> if you could only deal with one section of the community would it be golfers or would it be non-golfers where are our biggest challenges and problems there's definitely a tension with with non-golfers you know it is it, it, um and maybe we feel it quite a lot in scotland because you've got um got the public and the the come quite close to the golf course. They're built right in the town often. They're on the links courses or, or in, you know, even inland courses, the, the golf courses tend to be around. So you've got this close interaction. And sometimes the way in which the golf clubs, they they're quite can be quite defensive in the way that they communicate to those. And it's really about making sure no one gets hit in a hazard and it's seen golf course danger type signs. And, okay, there is an element of danger, don't get me wrong, but 
it's almost putting up barriers um, and the clubhouse is only accessible for members at certain times of day and so on and it'll, it's all these rules and it, and it puts people off even just using it as a, as a restaurant or a, or a bar to go for a drink you know um, so all those barriers that get put up is creating that division between those two groups that you just outlined in the golfers and the non-golfers and, and that that is the real problem that, that people have perceived this barrier and so a lot of the time we talk about trying to really encourage some kind of social initiatives that could become part of, of golf courses whether it's to do with volunteer groups or bird watching groups can come out and use the, the the asset that's the natural land of the golf course you know at certain times of day or in the morning or when it's quiet and, and safe to do so but go out and start to enjoy the golf course from, from other things rather than just golf and it works you know people start to, to think actually i can go there on the golf course you know I, I can be part of a group that can use it not just for golf but for other things walking running and so on it certainly ha it's certainly a way of breaking down a barrier and, and trying to, to build a connection with the community which um, successful golf courses have done and, and of course golf courses form an important part of the heat management in me metropolitan areas, don't they, where they, they have a, a appreciable impact on the cooling of metropolitan areas. You can detect they're several degrees cooler around golf courses, right? Yeah, and, and also it's protecting open space, right? Yeah. yeah. The only green space you ever see on Google Maps in Sydney is golf courses. That's not quite true, but it is not largely yet. true. Only, what about the, the only park in the middle of the city? Yeah, that's <laughs> Should, well, it's not big enough. Course. We need nine holes of it. Yeah, you could get, park you could get a few holes in there. You yeah. get some through the yeah. domain yeah. around Mrs. McQuarrie's chair. You're touching on all the hits here today, Sam, and shortly after this we'll, we'll come to distance in its place and the distance the golf ball goes in all of this. But that really plugs into public golf, does it not? That, that non-golf community perception of the game has no real impact if you're a member at a high-end fancy golf club because you've got your fence around it, you do what you want inside and nobody can tell you otherwise. It's private land and that's kind of the way things are. All those things you're talking about are crucial, are they not, for public golf? And if you are a member of one of the fancy clubs with the fence around and you think this has got nothing to do with you, if we don't save public golf and promote public golf, you're not going to have anywhere to play in about 15, 20, oh, 30 yeah. years' time. I'll come because, to you next. Yeah, you, you are next. So perhaps just talk a bit to the importance of that because I think that's a point that golfers miss. We see in Sydney there's been some contentious ideas about closing certain, certain you know, nine holes of Marrickville Golf Course was sort of under threat while nine holes at Moore Park Golf Course. These are big and important facilities, but the golfers themselves themselves that use those facilities are not doing the game or themselves any favours with they, the way they respond, Sam. They don't want to share. Yeah, that's true. And that, that, that can definitely be an issue, especially with the sort of public versus private. They don't want to share the, the, those public spaces with. And I think, I don't know if it happened as much in Australia, but certainly in the UK when we, when we went into lockdown, that those became public parks because um, you couldn't play golf. Yep. Um, and suddenly people were like, hang on a minute. We've, those guys have got a huge, those guys and girls have got a huge amount of green space that they're keeping for themselves. And then there was quite a tension and a, and a debate um, you know, to sort of try and reclaim some of that or at least improve the access. And in places it happened, you know, they maintained the walking path through an area that was that was safe to do so and, and, and it, it maintained a connection between two different neighborhoods that people could use and and it worked. So there was there's part of that and it works like you say on a public golf course where you've got there's actually a public money that's going into that and there's actually a, a, those people have got um, a claim if you like to be able to get better access than they do. So that pressure is going to build. And it's happening in California as well. There's, mm -hmm. there's pressure on housing all over the world. 
And so golf needs to be prepared to be proactive on that front and be able to defend itself and be able to, to put its best foot forward now. And you're right, it, it's going to come that it's not just the, the, the public courses, but the private courses as well that it's going to be coming under threat. I think that pressure on private golf clubs is increasing a lot in terms of how they go about things. And and I think I think we can be a bit like what we accuse non-golfers are of tarring things with one brush mm-hmm. in terms of private golf. I mean, Tara Edie is a great example in New Zealand. So a new golf course, ultra private, ultra exclusive. Now, when it was built, they felled a whole lot of pine trees on the property and they got a lot of feedback from local communities about what it was going to do to the species of bird, which is Tara Edie or it's like a, I think it's a fairy tern or something like that. They then did a lot of study around what it was going to do to that species, which is dwindling. And the removal of the pine trees actually allowed them to do different things with some dunes and everything like that that encouraged the species to be more protected and it also allowed them more access to get rid of predators. And the the amount of those birds has gone up. So that's a private golf club taking the outside interest mm-hmm. when it doesn't really have any neighbours. There's no one really who can tell those guys what to do. I mean, that's a very wealthy and powerful membership, but they're taking on Doing board. The right thing. So there, I think there's examples that, you know, you can look towards. Royal Melbourne's another one. Royal Melbourne with its vegetation and everything like that is, is very Elg. much so. Glenelg as well, With their, they've actually hired a biodiversity manager yeah. at Glenelg, um, Monina Gilby. Uh, I think actually Glenelg is uh, a club here in Australia that the GEO Foundation, GEO Foundation, uh, has certified or has a relationship. Is that right, Sam? And and several clubs yeah, in Australia right. have relationships here. Yeah, they do, yeah. And, and they're a good example. Like you said, they've actually created a dedicated staff um, resource towards, you know, looking at that issue of biodiversity and increasing vegetation on the golf course and, and seeing more bird life coming in. And they're not just, you know, doing that for fun and it's for a hobby. They're, they're doing it because there's pressure, there's there's a relevance and, and a value add for their members or for the for that community to see them doing that. Um, and it's it's a great example for us that they, they, they use our on-course software, which is like a, a web app that, that clubs can use and sign into and start to actually track and and, and record and, and check off the, the things that they do, the good practices that they do. And that, that platform helps them kind of package that up and, and then promote that even just to their members to tell them, you know, the kind of good good work and best practices they're doing. And, and that's been pretty successful. We've got a partnership with Golf Australia as well that, that has helped to sort of push that through the, the superintendents in Australia. And we're hoping now as you're... Um, you know, as you're coming through this this summer, that we'll see more and more you know golf courses start to use that program and be able to build a better database and a better resource that we can promote and communicate even more some of those good messages. Mm. Something that's often struck me, Sam. I've got two things I want to cover: this one and then the distance thing, which we'll come back to in a moment. But does golf sometimes need to accept that it actually doesn't belong everywhere? Surely not all golf is defensible. <laughs> Tough question. <laughs> yeah, that that could be true. There there are places that where, and I and we, you know I've spoken to plenty of, of members where they've they've realised that their club is under threat, and actually have realised that there's another club that they could go to that's not so far away. They they'll get a good deal when they sell that that land to become you know part of you know maybe a public housing or it could be a park, whatever it might be, and they're going to be able to move on to another club and and then you've got a density of golf courses though that those kind of conversations aren't so heated but if you come to a place where you, you know you're, you're you're very few the supply of golf courses in the area is low 
then um, you know golf needs to defend itself. So there are places where there's there's flexibility in that. You know, we've also seen eighteen holes go down to nine holes. Like so, the RNA are working on a, a new a sort of conversion of a public eighteen hole golf course in Scotland to become actually become a nine hole um, golf course, but then also create several other um, smaller uh, golf experiences if you like whether that's a top golf range but it's also a short game it's a putting green it's an adventure area so that you can actually have multiple types of golf for the scratch handicapper right up to the, the first timer in a public facility that's that's that originally was just an 18 hole pay and play uh, facility and, there's, and they're in an area where there's another 20 of those within about 40 minute drive so there's a saturation of the market and the RNA are in you know starting to Try and demonstrate how there's a new golf market or a new a new way of thinking about public golf that isn't just you know the standard length and so on and so forth. And actually, a pretty exciting, that's pretty interesting. It's a pretty exciting project that one, isn't it? it? Could potentially create a blueprint that could be used in lots of places around, but not an exact copy, but but a blueprint. We've seen the similar thing Something with like Winter Park, and yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's going to be a lot of sort of <laughs> lot of sort of stuff there. I guess I was thinking in some ways also beyond that. Do, do we have to accept as golfers? I'm thinking of desert golf in particular. I think it's an mm. awful look every year when the PGA Tour goes through and has that desert swing. And if I was a non-golfer and I switched on my television and saw that, I would immediately campaign in the streets for golf to be cancelled and anybody who plays it to be hung, drawn and quartered. It's surely golf has to accept some of our own limitations, Sam. Is that important or is there not enough of those situations to warrant giving it our attention? I just think that if we only build golf in places, you know, like the east coast of Scotland or Melbourne or, you know, places where those grasses and those conditions exist, you know, in in, in a very nice mix, um, then you're denying, you know, people that live in, in, in other parts of the world. You know, you could even argue, you know, the south of Spain or the south of Italy or even, you know, some parts of Australia where, it's, where water is an extreme issue. Um, to play a game because we don't think they should because it's too difficult for them to have that. I don't think that's a very fair position to take. So I would sort of defend the, the fact that, okay, let's look at this location and look at the challenges that we're going to have with heat or water or maybe, you know, with too much water, flooding or whatever it might be. And how can we create um, a golf experience and a golf course that, um, you know, respects and works within those parameters? And it might not be the same golf that you play when you're you're in Melbourne. You know, it might be a different kind of golf um, experience, but at least it's it's not nothing. And I think it's not fair to try to sort of say we should cancel golf in places where um, you know it's it's doesn't fit to, to our mind of what we think golf should be. Just beautifully nudged to the boundary that making it. it was, yeah, it was nothing <laughs> aggressive about the stroke, but it certainly was effective. <laughs> well, you answered that question really. I, I think I think Desert Golf's a good example of you know trying to take something that we identify and know as golf and just mm. blueprint it somewhere else. I mean, that's one of the things that just clearly as we move forward, golf's going to have to realise it needs to be a lot more malleable and a lot more you know, capable of moving with what's required in an area and what's acceptable. I've not been. Have you been to Kalgoorlie or the course at Alice Springs? I, have, I haven't been, I, I haven't been no. They're sort no. of similar ideas. Uh, look, desert golf in the States is a bad example. Yeah. They've built something there that just doesn't look right. You just can't have these great swathes of bright green in the middle of the desert. It doesn't and, and recreating sandbelt bunkers with yeah. thin top lines and things like that is yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. Let's come to the last thing I wanted to talk about, Sam, which is obviously the distance debate, which has kind of gone on the back burner the last 12 months. 
mercifully in some ways, because it's all we talked about for the best part of a decade was how far the ball goes. How does that plug into all of this? The USGA, we had George Waters on the podcast some time ago now, some considerable time ago. How does the growing footprint of golf with constantly increasing distance, and you'd be well aware of this in the golf industry, and the difficulty of just having these discussions with golfers? Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's a huge issue. And actually, you know, I think we probably recognize that the USGA and the RNA have now taken some pretty decent steps now towards um, trying to address the issue. I think that everyone's accepting now that the ball is flying too far and that you know, something needs to be done about it. And there's, they are collaborating well, I think, to, to get us to a point where we're probably going to see a reduction in the how far the ball goes. I think we're going to see that come. I don't know that, but I think we'll probably see that coming in the next few years. And, and we would welcome that just from the, the point of view of, like you say, the, the area of land that you would need to start buying and, 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 and you know, zoning for golf, it would just become, you know, a little bit unsightly because you you stretch 8,000 yards, wouldn't be far away and there probably are 8,000 yard courses out there. And, and that isn't, that's not a good look or an image for the game to have that we need to have that much space because we've, we've managed to be so good at making the little white ball we hit fly so far that we just, we're not going to stop doing that. We're just going to buy more land and make more space. So I think that um, it is an issue. I don't think it's just an environmental one. It's, 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 it's also just, you know, consumption. That, that the golf is consuming too much like that, that is that is not a good luck for the game. It actually doesn't really add a whole lot to the experience of the game, does it? Mm. As distance is just a relative thing. Yep. And so the shorter the ball flies, the shorter the course can be, and you can still get the same kind of... Try telling that to your members this Saturday when you go for your <laughs> round low. Tell them that they, the game would be better off if they hit it 15 yards shorter. Tell them they hit the ball too far. The yep. course is too green. That's exactly right. Well, it's a standard joke, isn't it? Kind of cheapens the whole issue but it's the first thing people say oh, I don't hit it too far it's like, well actually you do and 30 years ago you couldn't have hit it as far as you do now Logue doesn't hit it too far no. <laughs> except, it down except around the greens when you blade <laughs> yeah, when he, too far yeah that's right <laughs> oh there's always a joke to be out at Logue you've got it You've kind of also got to guard against like getting moving this idea about also like creating a, a, the, the golf course that suits that location. And sometimes if people get obsessed with distances, then you start seeing bunkers just suddenly collecting around the 280, the 310 mark, because that's where they think pros hit the ball. And then you start to get this sort of like homogenization of golf courses that we see on TV and, and it, it, people become obsessed with it and, and it, and it takes away the skill and the shot making and all these other things that we love watching pros play when they come to certain golf courses that, that we see them play. Um, and then, so that's the pro thing, but then also the amateur, like you said, is just, just trying to get away from a bit like green speeds. It doesn't really matter if you've added another one or two yards to your driver. It's, it's, you're still enjoying the shot of the game, even if it's not going quite as far. Um, and it's becoming, it, it become cheaper and easier to play the game um, if we don't have these balls pinging and flying all over the shop. Yeah. Well, you don't want to hit it one or two yards, far, yards further. You just want to hit it one or two yards further than your than mate. mate. Yeah. <laughs> that's really what that's about. <laughs> Rod, I don't think you got to uh, Thursday and Friday of sustainable I did not get work. to Thursday and Friday. You're absolutely right. right. I was dying to know what Thursday well, was. Thursday was golf cities and lands. Friday the 7th, moving day. What's moving day going to be, right. Sam? Where are we moving to? I think that's really just trying to create inspiration. So, you know, it'll be a little bit reflecting on the on the week that's been behind us and what, you know, what the various parts of golf are doing, but also starting to show some of the people that are taking 
you know, those first steps, those sort of in the leadership kind of people that are, are out there, you know, even some, you know, of like Gillanel actually making an investment in their staff and trying to, to, to take a step in the right direction. Those are great examples of, of people who are doing it now. Um, because sometimes it's quite easy with the steam to go, well, it doesn't seem to be much warmer than last year. So I'm not sure if global warming is really happening. So, um, you know, I'm not going to panic. As it actually, it is an issue that's happening right now and today. And we're seeing, you know, these things come to the fore. And um, th- th- that'll be a day to sort of show that actually it's too late. If you haven't started, it's just, you know, you're, you're behind the curve already. Oh, already we, we haven't got time to do it justice in today, but I just want to um, put a plug in for the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast with Monina Gilby from okay. uh, Glen Elg. I'll put a link in the show notes. It is superb. and You'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah. This is literally the least I could do. And uh, the... It's one of those situations. She relates a lot of stories about what's going on at the club there. And one of them is they don't have members coming up to them going, oh, there's a bit of worn out grass there in the rough. We can't, you know, can't have that. Can we grow some grass there? She has members coming up to her going, I've identified a species of bird that I haven't seen around here for years. And there you go. Like there's or this new insect that is I haven't seen around here for years. That, that's that's, that's what's turned around the attitude there at uh, Glen Elk. It's amazing. Uh, Saturday is highlights of the week. That's oh, I thought it was just a working week, sustainable. No, 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 no. It's golf, oh. golf's a oh, we got, oh, Saturday sat- game. Saturday and Sunday. Saturday okay. and Sunday are right. some of the biggest days. You, know, you get a lot okay. of traffic on a Saturday. All right. Highlights of the Saturday? week on Saturday. Sunday driving further, and I'm guessing you're probably clutching by this stage, Sam, to come up with a seventh topic. I wonder what that means. Is that really just having a look at what we did this year and what we might do next year, or am I off the track there? No, that's great. Yeah, so that's going to be looking at what's coming up over the next 12 months to get us back around to sustainable golf um, you know, next year um, and see, you know, what people can do, how they can get involved, how they can engage with it and, and hopefully inspire them, you know, to, to to take it up, to take it to their clubs, to take it to their greens committees and, and, and start to see the thing moving. So that's what that's going to be. Bottom-up change is the only way this is really going to change. That's exactly what you've just outlined with Manini yeah. Gilby. That's bottom-up change that's where bottom the members up. have changed and they're now sending that message yeah. further They've up. They've got beehives there. They sell honey from the golf course. It's growing I've, I've heard that of other yeah. golf courses around Australia as well, yeah. honey and someone, and there's often a member who looks after it. And it's a whole there's thing. a whole unexplored area. Isn't there? What other uses could you put the golf course to? Not that don't necessarily need to have people tracking it over them, but that you could use for them. I think there might be a couple of clubs who have their own kitchen uh, garden, kitchen gardens yep. that the imagine yep. keeping imagine staff. Oh, they did that at Glenelg as well. They imagine had a night how where many they jars them of in. Royal Melbourne honey you'd sell oh. where, during President's Cup week. You know, just people coming through and being able to buy a jar of Royal Melbourne. Don't honey. put the date on it. I'd be like Winnie the Pooh. I'd be in there. <laughs> Just roll it. Remarkably similar. <laughs> Last thing, Sam. <laughs> no pants. Uh, overall, <laughs> are you optimistic or is the outlook bleak? No, we're optimistic, hundred percent. You have to be, uh, otherwise you can't work in sustainability. Anyone that does will tell you that. So we, we've we've one hundred percent believe that every tiny action that golf takes, every one percent change it makes, is making it is making the game more sustainable. And and golf. Of all the sports you think about, swimming, rowing, basketball, tennis, football, um, you know, golf is a sport that can capture, you know, attention. It's got a big audience, a huge audience, and it's got a piece of land that it can play and work and use and, and celebrate. And so all those examples like Glen Elg and others that you just talked about there, um, you know, people making those small changes, we just want to be able to collect and, and showcase that and, and, and 
inspire more change and and we see it happening we've got three three and a half thousand highlights now in our database of little snippets of stories like you just said and it's growing like you know you, you're getting tens a week of people coming in and it's going to grow the hundreds a week more people do it so we're, we're perhaps that's maybe that's overly optimistic right <laughs> Oh, yeah, nobody sure talks about it's tested from time to time. <laughs> nobody talks about all the water that swimming uses, do they? No, they don't. Mm. Well, surfing, yeah. surfing's by far the best. Surfing and sailing use surfing, loads of water. They lose a you lot of water. You can't even do it without they? them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Okay. No one talks about how far swimmers swim either. I <laughs> know. Oh, <laughs> Roll it back. All the hot yeah. air they blow. That's Roll exactly it. right. Yeah. Part of the issue you've got there, of course, Sam, is that golf's somewhat a victim of its own success. We have our own media, don't we? We do a lot of talking to each other. There are not going to be many non-golfers here. Yeah. The discussion we've had today—that's a real issue, isn't yeah. it? To be able to get outside of golf yeah. and get these messages out. Yeah, 100%. And we're a very easy target. We're very visible. We've got a, you know, an image and reputation that, it, that is um, not what it should be. And so people like to pick at us. And, and, you know, think about that when pressures rise, you know, golf is going to be one of the targets that, that people come after. It's just a matter of thing. Prepare yourselves, golfers. We're uh, marching. It's, that's, that's, that's doom and gloom, that is. I was going to say that it's cured your optimism, hasn't well, it? Okay. <laughs> so yeah. fixed your yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's going to be a sad flight for Sam. He's going to be sitting there going, geez, those blokes brought me down. Oh, that, and with that recorder in his ear, I don't, I'm glad I'm not you, Sam, Fly, for the next year. Flying straight into unsustainable week next, starting Monday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, it's been fabulous of you to take some time and some of our ribbing. It really is. It's an important – what you do isn't glamorous – and I'm sure that you're aware of that, and it doesn't get the coverage from people like us that other elements about the game do get, but it is by far. It's far more important than what happens with between Live Golf and the PGA Tour and a whole bunch of other stuff that we devote a lot of time to. So we appreciate you taking some time to chat to us today, particularly under the circumstances there at the airport. No, thanks, Rod. I enjoyed it. It's, it's yeah, more and more of these things get out there, the, the, the better it is. So it's it's great to have you guys pick it up and to, to well, showcase it. We, we really like that. We've had about 15 episode ideas generated just today, so I'm sure we'll talk about it more. Jimmy, been fabulous to have you along representing millennials. Let's hope that they were happy with your performance. Uh, I'm sure they were. Oh, yeah. Proud proud representative of my people. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Well, I didn't get to talk much about you know my experience being different to yours in every way, but... There's another... There's another episode in there. You're here every week now, General. so there's plenty of time to talk about that. Just pipe down for the moment. Logue, great to have you all aboard, mate. Most Thanks. enjoyable. And thank That's you right. for all. Logue organised all yep. of today's, which was which is normally not his go, but you've done a fabulous job, mate. So thank you for that. Thank you. And that's episode, he says, checking his notes. 119 done. We'll be back with episode 120 next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.